Welcome to episode 15 of the Muck Podcast, where we discuss the dark and sometimes weird true stories in American politics. I'm Tina Jaramillo. And I'm Hillary Doherty. So Hillary, tell me about your quarantine week. <laughs> I, I had a mental breakdown this week for sure. Um, it looks like the schools are going to be closed until, you know, it looks like maybe the rest of the year, which for me is two more months. And that means being responsible solely really for the care child care of my children in including also going to work and um it's a very daunting idea so I did have a bit of a breakdown and also because you know like other working parents we have this village right whether it's aftercare or grandparents or whatever friends people can step in and kind of pick up the 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 slack or like for my mental sanity like help a little bit yes and even if I have to pay them to do it (laughs) like some people who help and so the idea that um there's no break it's it's no break break, but oh no 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 I need a break yeah no and then it's like coming home I'm used because of all the political work that we do I'm used to not being home two or three nights a week and not having to do that and so now it's like the 24 hours a day being asked a million questions and I love my children dearly, but it is, uh, huge. And, but in the grand scheme, so I kind of had to, I'm, I'm, I need to have a plan. I need to have an idea of like when this is over. And I, as a person, you know, as that's my personality. And so for, for this to be up in the air, I, it took me a good 48 hours to calm myself down (laughs) and just get used to the idea that a lot of people are in this boat and of yeah. of all of people I am very privileged in the way that I can bring my kids to work and I don't have to really worry too much yeah. if I'm going to if what what I'm going to do with my kids when I go to work there are a lot yeah. of families right now that are struggling have lost their jobs don't know how they're going to pay their bills don't know how they're going to be a teacher a parent an employee like all at the same time because a lot of those things have gone away and so it's the stress level not to mention trying to not get sick yeah and so you know my story this week is because I not only was all of those things happening at the same time but then I was watching um, people trying to encourage folks like don't worry you'll be able to file for all of these unemployment things. And I'm like, oh, this government, this administration, good luck. Like that's where my story really comes from because I was so livid because exactly what I predicted would happen happened where people came out and were like, well, we don't really need to give that much money to unemployment, right? So that's where I'm at right now. I'm getting better, but you know, it's, this is going to be a rough couple of months. It's, it's been rough being home, um, and trying to work with my children, I have to say. And yeah. But I am so incredibly lucky that I'm still working. But I feel like I'm on work 24-7 because right. I'm interrupted so many times by my kids that my work day is now, like, stretched out because I have to stop to make breakfast. I have yep. to stop to make lunch. I have to stop to do all those dishes in between. I have to stop to, you know, break up fights and get them to go outside. And, you know, it's yeah. just... The, the little interruptions all add up and then I'm like, oh my God, I, I still have to do X, Y, and Z. And right. so that's been a little overwhelming. And I saw some posts that was like, oh, you don't have to keep your kids, you know, um, when you homeschool. 
engaged in school for six hours a day because there's all these activities and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, maybe three to four hours. But I'm like, three to four hours, that's still a big chunk of the day. It's a lot. In adding to, like, when I'm working, because then if I'm done with work, that's now three to four hours after work that we're trying to do school or I have to fit it in between. So, well, um, it's it's very. And I haven't heard from my my children's teachers yet. They're going to supposedly tonight. At some point, we're going to get some information. And uh, so I don't know what it looks like yet. And since I don't know what it looks like, I feel like I don't, I can't schedule it. Yes. And I'm like a schedule, like I'm a to-do list person where every day I have my list of like, okay, this is how my day is going. And so I haven't. Yeah. That, that, well, so once I know that, then I feel like I'll get into a groove, but. Yeah. I hear you. That's the groove. So my kids were sent home with work two weeks ago. My daughter was insanely overwhelmed and so I had to sit down and we made a calendar and I said, okay, these are the three things you need to do every day before you get on a tablet or watch TV or whatever you're going to do. And she's very good at getting it done. And then my son is very hard. That is where it's difficult is yeah. that now I've got somebody who I've got to stay on top of his ass to get his stuff done. And That's so like what you're describing, one. yeah. And so what you're describing, and it's just kind of like hit me all at once is that it's overwhelming, but the impact it's having on working mothers in particular, because because yeah. my husband's not stepping in, he has to go work and he can't take the kids with him. So the impact that working mothers have on a daily basis pre-coronavirus is now doubled after coronavirus. And I, what annoys me the most is that nobody's talking about it. Yeah. Everybody wants to talk about staying home, social distancing, the things you can do at home, blah, blah, blah. But nobody's really having that conversation. And I felt completely alone in it. I would yeah. put a post up on my Facebook and it would be not an attack by teachers or other parents, but it would be like, well, what do, what's the alternative? And I'm like, well, listen, not everybody's going to be happy, super roses. We're all a human family right yeah. now. I'm drowning. And guess what? Other mothers are too. Yeah. Other working mothers are too. So where's that conversation? Why aren't we talking about that? And how we all like, that's a huge impact on people's lives. Yeah, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. And here's the other part. I also know when I'm saying this, that I'm healthy. Yes, thank you. My family is healthy. Yes. And so those are all like the good things. Like I know we'll get through it, but it is still hard. Like it is still a huge impact on working, on working mothers, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I can't imagine the there's a lot of siblings also, and I think that that's not being talked about uh, a lot, like a lot of high school-aged students who now have the responsibility yes. of their younger siblings yes. because their parents are workers, especially like kids who have parents in essential business and yeah. healthcare and yes. EMTs and nurses, so they're stressed out about their own family members every day, plus they have to do their online schooling, plus they yes. have to it's take burden. care of siblings and I really haven't heard much about those kids yeah right that that are really bearing a lot of responsibility right now um and how we can help those kids yeah you know stay okay you know what I mean because I can imagine that that would probably be really stressful because I feel I'm stressed out as like an adult then as a teenager to have to deal with or even being a parent having to ask your older child who didn't sign up for that like have to make sure your brother eats and make sure you do this and make sure they get their homework done or whatever it is that that's probably adding additional stress I mean I've had families in those situations yeah and having to have a conversation with an eight-year-old like like I've had to have this week numerous times, like right in the eye to eye, you know, 
you i'm if i'm I'm asking you to do this your teacher like would you tell your teacher this no would you tell your teacher no i'm not doing that like you know let's let's get it together i know i that always amazes me at at how like the mortification oh especially my older son like if 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 his teacher yes uh, he forgot his book at home my god he it was like panic but you know he he won't clean his room for days for me. I'm like, I don't understand. Like, the, <laughs> why why do you why why do you care so much more about like her freaking out over yeah. me freaking out? Like, what? Well, what that's what I've said. Oh, I'm gonna go text your teacher real quick and see what she says about. Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Get it done. Ugh. yeah. So, so thank you, teachers. Thank you. Yes, my oh God. My. <laughs> All right. So uh, I have a quick little mea culpa. So our last episode, episode 14, I said Kia Morris and it's Kaya Morris. And I remember even prior saying to myself, I have to say it correctly. And I kept saying it in my head and I knew that I was going to mess it up. And I, and I did. So, um, I, I apologize to Kaya Morris and all the listeners out there, but it's Kaya Morris, not Kia. So, um, mia culpa. So sorry. No, please. That's your first out of, we're on episode 15. I know. Girl, how many times have we come in here? Please, like, there's probably so much more with my, my name pronunciations, <laughs> but I'm excited to hear your story. Okay. So I am first this week and I am going to talk about a man who has haunted my life in, living in Florida for far too long. Uh-oh. And <clears throat> when he was elected as a U.S. Senator, I thought, good, <sighs> now the United States can all know the pain uh, that Florida has felt uh, for the last eight motherfucking years oh i know where this is going so this week i'm gonna talk about u.s senator rick scott oh my god i hate him so much uh he's the junior senator from florida and our senior senator is marco rubio oh dear god who's the equivalent of like a door mouse spineless uh, comes out peeks his head out of his little hole says a few words every once in a while and then runs back into his hole and disappears He's of, uh, these are our senators, Rick there. Scott and Marco Rubio. And Rick Scott, um, you know who he reminds me of? So, uh, and I'm going to, again, I feel like I'm always aging myself, but Poltergeist 2. Oh, honey. The guy with the hat. Hi, the Yes, that's him. Yes. That, that's Rick Scott. There's so many comparisons. <laughs> He's also referred to as Voldemort, Lord yes. Voldemort, yes. which I don't like to say his name out loud. Oh, I'm wearing my Harry Potter sweater too. <gasps> you are. That's crazy. Um, that's gracious. So he, <laughs> so I'm going to talk about him because he really pissed me off this week. This is one of the four senators. Rick Scott was one of the four senators who came out this week and was saying some shit about the, the unemployment package that yeah, was passed. But of course he was. We'll get down to that. Um, he's so corrupt. And his former state. Oh, I can't wait. Yeah. I can't yes. wait. So let's get into this. So Rick Scott was born Richard Lynn Myers in Bloomington, Illinois on December 1st, 1952. Scott never met his biological father, who was described by Scott's mother as an abusive alcoholic. In uh, 1954, uh, his mother, Esther, married Orba George Scott Jr., a truck driver. Orba adopted Rick, young Rick, who took his stepfather's surname and became known as Richard Lynn Scott. Scott was raised in North Kansas City, Missouri, the second of five children. His family was lower middle class and struggled financially. Um, his mom worked at J.C. Penney's. Remember J.C. Penney? Oh, oh my God, that's where my, we used to go school mom, shopping. My mom worked for J.C. She did. She did. Oh my God, yeah. that's where we used to go for kids as kids for clothes. Yeah, and remember that big old catalog you'd get the J.C. Oh, Penney catalog. I used to love the Christmas catalog. It was <laughs> yes. like my favorite to yeah. go through. Oh yeah. my God, the best. <laughs> so Scott graduated from North Kansas High School in 1970. He then t- attended one year of community college and enlisted in the United States Navy. Um, he was in the Navy for 29 months and served as a radar technician. 
On April 20th, 1972, Scott, then um, then 19 years old, married his high school sweetheart, Frances Annette Holland, and the couple had two daughters. Scott attended college on the GI Bill, and he graduated from the University of Missouri, Missouri. <laughs> Missouri with a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration. And then he earned his law degree by working his way through Southern Methodist University. And he was licensed by the Texas Bar to practice law on November 6th, 1978. Okay. So Scott first got into business while working his way through college and law school, initially buying and reviving a failing donut shop by adding workplace delivery instead of relying on foot traffic. Hmm. He later bought and revived another donut shop. So following his graduation from law school, he worked at an, um, as an attorney at a law firm in Dallas and um, in 1988, Scott and Richard Rainwater, a financier from Fort Worth, put, each put up $125,000 in working capital in their new company, Columbia Hospital Corporation. And so then they from donuts to hospitals. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then he bar- they borrowed the remaining money needed to purchase two struggling hospitals in El Paso for $60 million. Dang. Yeah. I don't get how people just like I know. have all this money. I know. <laughs> or are able to borrow all that money. Yeah. Um, then they acquired a neighboring hospital and shut it down within a year. The two remaining, uh, the remaining two hospitals are doing much better. So they bought the competition, closed it. And then their wow. two hospitals they bought started to do better. Right. By the end of 1989, Columbia hospital corporation owned four hospitals with a total of 833 beds. In 1992, Columbia made a stock purchase of basic American medical, which owned eight hospitals, primarily in Southwestern Florida. In September 1993, Columbia did another stock purchase worth $3.4 billion of Gallon Healthcare, which had uh, been spun off by Humana Inc. several months earlier. So it's always this acquiring, just constantly acquiring more, 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 more. That's how they got so big. At the time, Galen had approximately 90 hospitals. After the purchase, Galen stockholders had 82% of the stock in the combined company, with Scott still running the company. Um, in April 1987, Scott made his first attempt to buy the Hospital Corporation of America, or HCA. While still a partner at the law firm, Scott formed the HCA acquisition company with two former executives of Republic Health Corporation. Um, with financing from Citicorp conditional on acquisition of HCA, the proposed holding company offered $3.85 billion for 80 wow. million shares at $47 each, intending to assume $1.2 billion in debt for a total of a $5 billion deal. However, HCA declined the offer and the bid was withdrawn. The practice, it's just interesting to me, hospital and profit. And yeah, this is, I had this. I had a very interesting conversation with my husband yesterday because he works at a hospital and it is a private hospital, but it's run by a, a nonprofit. And yeah, it's, a, it's a religious. It's a religious hospital, yeah. but it's run by a nonprofit, which I wasn't, I didn't know. I thought the people who owned it were, was a private company, you know, a corporation. Um, and it's very, and this is a very interesting conversation yeah. about profit and healthcare. I, I just, I, it, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. That that I feel like all ho- all hospitals should be nonprofit. That it, yeah, it, it shouldn't. But it, this is why you know. Again, I mean, this Ugh. is a whole side conversation. But yes, like, I know why it's healthcare just, is so expensive is because yes. everybody. What from what my husband was saying to me because it is something that I'm like I don't get this because it seems wrong. It, it, but it feels entirely. Wrong. It does. It does. But but what he's saying, then you're going to cut corners, and where yeah. are you cutting corners? Is it yeah. on staff? Is it on supplies? Is it yeah. on 
You I know, know? And, and also it's, like, cutting deals with insurance. I, I, it feels very ugly. But also to me, it's America and it's business. Like this is about make. You know, it's about everything is a, is a business and it's about profit. And so, even if you own a hospital, yes, you want to give people the best care. Like let's just assume that, right? Let's yeah. assume it. See, but I don't. I, I don't. I, I, know. I feel like That's once I, once business is involved in things like a hospital, I feel like certain things should not be part of that. Right. I hear you. I I hear you. You know, as a human being in my heart. Yeah. And (laughs) as a human being in my heart, I want to be like. Education. Yes. Healthcare. Yeah. You know. You want to hope they're doing the right thing, but you also have to remember that it is a business. And it's the bottom line. It's at the end of the day, they're not there to, to make sure that you serve. Well, see, I can't say that. They, of course they want to give you the best healthcare, but they also want to make money. Yeah. And so can those two things work in sync? I don't don't know because look at the state of our healthcare system. Everything that was predicted by people who said healthcare is going to exp- it's going to be a major problem. Like every these are the things that we're where we're lacking for poor folks and people who don't have insurance. All of those things that we complain about and people who are in power ignored, ignored, ignored it forever is now coming to a head. And what I suspect will happen is that they will still continue to ignore this major problem, and it's never going to really get solved. Because it, it is about the bottom line, and it, it, even if you're elected official and you're talking about healthcare, it's about business, you know. It's it's, and I get it that we're, you know, it, we're capitalism. Like I, yes. I, I understand that, but I, I still feel that 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 there should be certain industries that, morally, ethically, no, that's there's no such thing in this. There's no such and thing. not in the U.S. anyway. No. <laughs> So, um, okay, so they withdrew the offer, or the bid was was withdrawn. And then in 1994, Columbia Hospital Corporation, which is his company, merged with HCA, quote, forming the largest, single largest for-profit healthcare company in the country, end quote. Mm. Scott became CEO of Columbia slash slash HCA. According to the New York Times, quote, in less than a decade, Mr. Scott had built a company he founded with two small hospitals in El Paso into the world's largest healthcare company, a $20 billion giant with three, about 350 hospitals, 550 home healthcare offices, and, and a score of other medical businesses in 38 states. Okay, that's what he had wow. done in a, in a decade. Wow. So let's get into how he was able to do that. Yeah, I'm okay? sure, I'm this sure is, there's some shadiness afoot. Because in 10 years to be able to build that is nearly impossible. Mm-hmm. I and believe it. And that's why there was started an investigation. On March 19th, 1997, investigators from the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the Internal Revenue Service, and the Department of Health and Human Services served search warrants at Columbia HCA facilities in El Paso and on dozens of doctors with suspected ties to the company. Eight days after the initial raid, Scott signed his last SEC report, the um, Securities Exchange Commission report, as a hospital executive. Four months later, the board of directors pressured Scott to resign as chairman and CEO. He was paid $9.88 million in a settlement and left owning 10 million shares of stock, then worth more than $350 million. The directors had been warned in the company's annual public reports to stockholders that incentives Columbia HCA offered doctors could run afoul of a federal anti-kickback law passed in order to limit or eliminate instances of conflict of interest in Medicare and Medicaid. That's just one of the things that they were doing. Um, during Scott's 2000 deposition, he pled the fifth amendment many times up to 70 times. I'm going to show you a picture of him, um, in his deposition. Cause he looks like a smug asshole. 
Oh my God. And it's very clear when you plead the fifth like that. Yeah. And I know it's part of our constitution. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> You're allowed to do that. But to me, you know what's going on. Oh, of course. You know what's going on. And you walked out of there with a golden parachute and you're a crook. Yeah. You're a crook. Um, in settlements reached in 2000 and 2002, Columbia HCA pleaded guilty to 14 felonies and agreed up to a, a 600 plus million dollar fine in what was at the time the largest healthcare fraud settlement in American wow. history. Columbia HCA admitted systematically overcharging the government by, cause they were doing this It's a Medicaid fraud, right? A Medicare fraud. Uh, sorry. Um, they were claiming marketing costs as reimbursable. They were striking illegal de deals with home care agencies, filing false data about use of hospital space. They also admitted fraudulently billing Medicare and other pro health programs by inflating the seriousness of diagnoses. Wow. So, oh my Wait, God. Wait, I'm not done. Let me, let me get through these. Giving, giving doctors partnerships in company hospitals as a kickback for the doctors referring patients <gasps> to HCA. They filed fa filed false cost reports, fraudulently billing uh, Medicaid Medicare for home health care workers, and paid kickbacks in the sale of home health agencies and doctors, and to doctors to refer patients. That was another one, uh, but but the selling of the home health age agencies to doctors. In addition, they gave doctors quote loans never intending to be repaid. They gave them free rent, free office furniture, free drugs from hospital pharmacies. And in late uh, 2002, HCA agreed to pay the United States government 631 million plus interest and pay 17.5 million to state Medicaid agencies. In addition to $250 million paid up to the point to resolve outstanding Medicare expense, expense wow. claims. Cause they have to reimburse back to yes. all the things they did. Right. In all, civil lawsuits cost HCA more than $2 billion to settle. At the time, this was the largest fraud settlement in American history. Wow. So this is how he was able, they, they were able to purchase all of these hospitals and, and all these acquisitions and da 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 is because they were stealing from the government. Right, They were right. stealing from Medicare. And, the, and this is the same guy, right, who's going to sit yeah. there and talk about, we got to make changes and cuts to Medicare, yeah. blah, blah, blah. Meanwhile, yeah. he, he made all of his money as a scam artist. Yeah. And what about, what about criminal charges? No, he got out. No, he's out. Yeah. He's out. He's, he was out of the, you know, he, oh, wow. it, as the, it, being in charge of this, that smug face that like, I don't know, you know, taking the fifth take. I mean, could you imagine? So after HCA, um, after his departure in 1997, Scott launched Richard L. Scott Investments based in Naples, Florida, which has stakes in healthcare and manufacturing and technology companies. Between 1998 and 2001, Scott purchased 50% of CyberGuard Corporation for approximately $10 million. And then in 2006, CyberGuard was sold to Secure Computing for more than $300 million. Damn. So this is what he does now. Now that he's out of that business, now he sits in Naples, Florida on his ass, right? And buys companies and sells them. Buys companies yeah. and sells them for like triple, four times, yeah, five times what he bought me it for. What was the guy? Um, it's in Pretty Woman, Richard Gere, like yes. the guy, like yes. the corporate. Uh, <laughs> what are they? There's a name for it. He's a venture capitalist, yeah. right? They so, just go in and they, yes, they dismantle, break yes. up the companies, and yeah, Ugh. that's what he does. So in February, two, which again, you know, if you're doing it legally, that's that's the American mm. way. Like, look, well, it, you, know, I, you know, this sure, is, why I not? I don't like it. I, I listen. It again. It doesn't. It doesn't make me a How? little uncomfortable. Yes, but again, it's not. It's it's. If you're doing it legally, there's nothing wrong with it. Right. If there's huge loopholes in the law that making you letting you get away with bullshit, yeah, that's uh, a different story. It's it's just the the moral, just the corrupt 
moral mindset. Yeah. Of, but that's of, not just wanting to acquire and acquire and acquire to me. And it is so greedy. Yeah. You are so rich already. Like, just go, go s- relax, have a pina colada. No. Like, what are you doing? I think it's the thrill of it. I think it's got mm-hmm. something to do with being able to have as much as possible. And he grew up really poor. Maybe it had something to do with that. Like, just wanting to be super, super successful financially. I, I, I don't know. And again, there's nothing wrong with it. But if you're breaking the law. And also, this is not the type of person you would want in charge of your state as a politician no. or as a leader. Right. Like this is not the type of person you would elect to run a a state. Yeah. Well, right. Somebody who's this morally corrupt, especially morally bankrupt with all his money. And again, not with this business stuff with your with the Columbia HCA. This is you. He was the leader of a corporation, the largest Medicare fraud in the United States history at the time. Why would that be somebody in in a state with full of seniors? Yeah. And why (laughs) would that be somebody who you would want in charge Mm -hmm. of your state? Okay. Um, because people don't do their research and they, I had to tell you, we all knew this. Like, this is not oh, something, these are things that were brought up in every oh, single one of the campaigns yeah, and we, nobody gave a, sh- those, the people who voted for him didn't give a fuck. Yeah. Well, because there, there was an R next to his name. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. Yeah. So, okay. So in February, 2005, he purchased Continental Structural Plastics in Detroit, Michigan. And then in 2000, July, 2006, he purchased Bud Plastics from Thyssen Krupp making continental structure plastics the largest in- industrial composites molder in North America. In 2005, Scott provided the initial funding um, of $3 million to Allajor.com, which offered hospitals, physicians, and other healthcare providers the opportunity to post information about their prices, hours, locations, insurance accepted, and personal backgrounds online. Scott co-founded the company with his daughter, Allison. And, and then in 2008, Allajor was sold to Healthgrades. So that's another thing. I think that he, I think they see something that exists. They go and make it bigger or better. They yeah. make something else that's like that. And then once it be gets, starts happening, like getting bigger, they know health grades is going to come and buy it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I think then yeah. they get acquired and they make that money back. Yes. Right? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> it's not dumb. I mean, it's not no, dumb. No, 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 no. I mean, it's, it's, this is, that's that world. Yeah. And if you have the money to start that and do it, then, then. I guess. I know. So <laughs> in July 1997, so this is back before he, um, when he was still at Columbia, uh, Columbia HCA Healthcare purchased a controlling interest in America's Health Network, AHN, the first 24-hour healthcare cable channel. They pulled out of the deal on the day of the closing because Scott was terminated, okay, mm. and which caused the immediate layoffs of more than 250 people in Orlando. Okay, because they weren't going to get that deal. Later that same year, Scott became a majority owner of AHN personally. So he, his company Columbia was going to buy it. They had to pull out because Scott got fired. And then yeah. he's like, well, I can still get involved. And then like maybe Columbia can't, but I can personally still get wow. involved in, in buying this. So that's wow. what he did, right? And wow. um, so in 1998, Scott and then a former Columbia HCA president, David Vanderwater, led a group of investors who gave AHN a major infusion of cash so the company could continue to operate. By early 1999, the network was available in 9.5 million American homes. From 1999 to 2001, the channel was bought and sold by different corporations and was eventually sold to Discovery Health Channel for $155 million. It's like he's got a golden touch even, you know? So Solantic was based in Jacksonville, Florida and was co-founded in 2001 by Scott and Karen 
bowling. This is a, a married couple. A former television anchor Scott met after um, that that Rick Scott met after Columbia bought what is now Memorial Hospital in 1995. So they opened Solantic together um, in 2002, and it's um it's one of these emergency clinics. So yeah. you can go in there and get you know urgent care services, yeah. immunizations, things like that. This is all interesting though that he's involved in these Still, clinics that are yeah. helping people who don't have insurance and who mm-hmm. so so getting it on both ends. Right. But then I think, you know, with his policy perspective, you know, is he making decisions that are going to benefit Right, him with these of businesses, honey, you know, like he would never do anything that wasn't going to do that. I know, but that's where I mean that 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 that's that conflict. Yes, it, um, it's, it's not right. I know. In August 2007, the company received a 40 million dollar investment from a private equity firm and said that it expected to open 35 clinics by the end of 2009, with annual revenues of 100 million dollars once all the, these clinics opened, compared to 20 million at the time. As of March 2009, Slantic had 24 centers all located in Florida. Um, and Solantic was the target of an un- of an employment discrimination suit, which claimed that there had been a policy to not hire elderly or obese applicants, preferring, quote, mainstream candidates. Oh, dear. It was settled for an undisclosed sum on May 23rd, 2007. Scott responded to the claims of discrimination, pointing out that, quote, currently 53% of Solantic's employees are white, 20% black, and 17% Hispanic. Hispanic. You know, he's, he's so funny because... Um, one of the, the most frustrating things for me about Rick Scott is that he never really answers anything. Yeah. You can go watch his debates with other candidates. You can watch interviews. You can watch um, just like a media line when they're like, ask, like he's coming out and someone asks him a question. He never really gives you an answer. And that what I just read is this very robotic, like somebody fed me information. Here's the well, information. Well, yeah, Here's he's, the facts. He's going to appeal. Yeah, he's going to appeal to people yeah. with numbers, right? Yes. When people hear statistics and people, or numbers, and what they're you, like, oh, yeah. okay, then that's that's a, a concrete yes. thing that I can believe in, yeah. right? And if you don't know that issue front and back, you just stare and you're like, uh, uh, okay, oh, yeah. right? Especially um, the people who are going to be for him or like, well, he, he gave the statistics out. Yes. Right. Yeah. And he, this is, but, but, but as a person who, what he's one of the people who represents me and has been for eight years as governor. And then now as a Senator, he doesn't really give an answer to any question ever. Yeah. Yeah. He's word salad, that word salad answer that really good politicians know how to do. They give you this false answer and uh, it's one of the most frustrating things about him. Or that circular logic. Like, they, yeah. they'll just go around. And he's got these. Really I, I wanted to show you anything. this picture as well because this is the picture I'm going to use on our when we do our Instagram. It's very much his signature dead-eyed robotic oh my God, I, oh. look. Oh, he's so scary. He's that's, very That's where he looks like the poltergeist guy. Yeah. And oh he my just, God. <laughs> there's just this very, like, maybe it's because oh. I am kind of more on the liberal side or because liberals really vote from their hearts we have to fall in love with somebody which yeah. is why this election is, is so difficult for me now in 2020 <laughs> but um i can't I, I this person doesn't seem human and no. so democrats need someone who's passionate like as a liberal i like a very passionate person who gets my gets me gives me goosebumps when they speak yes this is very that, difficult someone that you can i feel the same way that that i have to connect yeah with the person but you know this this year it's just it's uh, hard. this year it's hard, but at the end of the day, like there is the, the one goal is I to, is to topple 45 girl. Mm-hmm. 
double. Democrats, Democrats fall in love. Republicans fall in line. Yeah, but we gotta, we gotta fall in. We all gotta fall in line this year. All right, I don't need a lecture over here. We gotta <laughs> fall in line. <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> So here's where we start getting into the political world with Scott. Um, in February 2009, Scott founded Conservatives for Patients' Rights, which he said was intended to put pressure on Democrats to enact health care legislation based on free market principles. Oh, my God. Which is like the opposite of what, yeah, what exactly I mean, what we were just saying. Like, is this no, something that's business? No. Mm. He As is of, wrong. I know. Healthcare <laughs> should be, it should not be part of a capitalistic gain. This is, it's people's lives. I know. I, this is, this, I, I, I can't. I'm going to. So as out. of March 2009, he had given about $5 million for a planned $20 million camp ad campaign for conservatives for patients' rights. Here we go. Now, I, this is where I was working on this yesterday. And I said to my husband, who is a Republican, I am married to a Republican. It's uh, something I'm. I struggle with every day of my life, <laughs> <laughs> but I challenge. also, it's but a- I also find very interesting because this is somebody I can bop things off of. And I'm like, what do you think about this? Right. And I know I'll get an answer because he's very, you know, conservative in a lot of ways that I, I hate so much, but he's also very right down the line. Like, this is why this is the way it is. Like he, what you just said about how it shouldn't be, he'll come out here and give you an argument about why that's not true. And uh, it's infuriating. And I'm like, Oh, must be nice. That kind of thing. But I like to hear the other side of it. And so I said to my husband, like, why would somebody like this ran through all the stuff, the business, why would he want to get involved in politics? It makes no sense. It makes no sense to me. And, and he's living I, his own life. It's like Donald Trump. Why are you getting involved? You're sitting on a golden throne. Maybe it's, maybe it's held up by, you know, you know, Ritz crackers that are about to yeah, crush yeah. underneath <laughs> it. But like, you're sitting on a golden throne. Why are you getting involved? And you know what his answer was to what? me? And it clicked with this guy? Power. Yeah, ego. And it makes Power. so much sense to me. Because I, I mean, you really like, he's acquiring businesses and acquiring wealth. What the fuck are you doing? Why? Why? Why would you want to go be? And you've never sat in office before. And all of a sudden you're going to run for governor of the state of Florida. What the fuck is, what happened? Why? What's that reason? Power, Tina. Yes. Power. Yes. Right. And And the government came involved, got involved with his company. He probably thinks he got fucked because he's pleading the fifth, right? Power. Well, and I, I mean, I see the power, but I also see someone who is savvy and, you know, how can he pull political strings to continue yeah. to to build his monetary empire, to have loopholes and have yeah. different things that are going to continue to allow what he does to continue, especially yeah. with like profiting and off of healthcare systems and, you know, the way that he's going to vote about things that might impact the healthcare system, I and his it, and his wallet, yeah. So here we go. On April 9th, two thousand ten, Rick Scott announced his candidacy for the two thousand ten Republican Party nomination for governor of Florida. And that was that God awful year. I God mean, remember me. that year? Mm. That was an awful year yeah. across the U.S. Yes. as far as people getting elected. Yes, Tea Party. Yes. Um, it was reported on May seventh that Scott's campaign had already spent four point seven million dollars on television and radio ads. This is going to be a very ex- running theme with him is basically buying his campaign by swaying voters and um, with ads and. God, this makes me so mad. I mean, and there Tina, needs to be the money a, spent, girl. Listen, there needs to be a, a, a cap. 
Yeah. I really believe that there has to be, that there has to be an equal p- playing field. It cannot just be people who are rich in America get to be elected to seats because they have the money to dump in yeah. to, to ads. Yeah. You know, like I, I remember, uh, the past governor election, even two years ago, I, I was listening to podcasts and, and certain people who were running, who had the money, I'm, I'm hearing their ads over and over as I'm listening to podcasts, as I'm listening to the radio, as I, it, it's, it's not, I get it that, that you have money, but there needs to be a way for regular people who are moving their way up to have access to political seats. And I he think that there needs had. to be, uh, there has to be some regulation and it can't just be because you're a billionaire on either side that you get to dump all your money into something. And now like you have recognition that's, uh, it's bullshit. Sorry. Agreed. Don't apologize. That's (laughs) fucking just go and convince somebody of this, please. Go to the Supreme Court, grab somebody by the collar (laughs) and say, listen up, motherfucker. Yes. We're here. Like we got, we need to level the playing field again. We need some, well, this is some equity. We need some equity in in these elections, man. This is an example of somebody who, you know, this is exactly what he did. He used all of that to his advantage, that money. So during the primary campaign, Scott's opponent, Bill McCollum, made an issue of Scott's role at Columbia HCA. Scott countered that the FBI had never targeted him personally. Mark Caputo Uh. of the Miami Herald, who, by the way, I got a lot of information from, uh, uh, his articles are in my notes. Mark Caputo is the bomb. Do people still say that? Do I wish it was the 90s? Yes. Okay. <laughs> Mark Caputo of the, Miami, of the Miami Herald contended that a 1998 bill sponsored by McCollum would have made it more difficult to prosecute Medicare fraud cases and was counter to his current views and allegations. I love this so much. Oh my you can't go God. after somebody and say Medicare fraud when you're in sitting in a powerful position as a sitting senator in Florida. Making laws where it'd be more difficult to go after somebody who commits Medicare fraud. Fuck off. Oh my okay. God. Scott it's, won. It's so, um, it's so this is it's so hilarious. Bonkers. Scott won the August primary with 47% of the votes. By the date of the Tampa debate between Scott and Dem candidate Alex Sink um, in October 2010, Scott had spent $60 million of his own money on the campaign compared to Democratic opponent Alex Sink's reported $28 million. Scott campaigned as part of the Tea Party movement. Um, the Fort Myers Press quoted Scott as saying, in total, he spent roughly $78 million of his own money on the campaign. And it's, it's disgusting. It is. It me. is. It's disgusting. And, and I hate to um, uh, break some bad news to people, but the Florida Democratic Party, <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Good luck raising money to get to be, they don't have their shit together. Um, <laughs> he won the general election for governor of Florida, defeating Sink by 68,000 votes or 1.29%, which, by the way, isn't a big margin for spending that amount of money. You spent $78 million of your own money and only won by 1.29%. I mean, uh, okay. But, you know, um, I mean, who. The, the thing is, who is this guy? You know what I mean? Yes. He's, he's done. Well, uh, businessman, 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 right. businessman. That's the, that's what they but, sold but what, to people. What, 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 what did you do for your community ever? No, nothing. No, you no, know, Tina. That's, that's it. But, Tina, but you have to remember this is, he's not running as a Democrat. He's right. running as a Republican. They don't care about shit like that. They yeah, don't care. Just, I'm a successful businessman. Look at how much money I have. Um, and then he took office as the 45th, 45th governor of florida on january 4th 2011 oh my God, 45 and 45 <laughs> so i'm gonna jump 
to his second election and then get into all the things he did as the eight years as governor. So the 2014 election for governor in October 2011, Scott announced that he would be running for re-election in 2014. His political funding committee, which was called Let's Get to Work, has um, had raised $28 million for his campaign as of May 2014. Um, as of early June 2014, Scott had spent almost $13 million in three months on television ads attacking, attacking former Governor Charlie um, Crist, who had then been the likely nom- Democratic nominee and would eventually become the nominee. Don't oh, even I know that, get me that, started I, that, on that, Charlie motherfucking Chris. That whole thing was girl so nuts. I am right now I, triggered. <laughs> back to six years ago. Now, if if you don't live in Florida, let me give you a little background about Charlie oh my Christ. Goodness. Before Scott, he had been the governor of Florida as a Republican. Yes. As a Republican. He went away yes. to run for an office that he lost. He couldn't then, take it. He couldn't, he couldn't take, take it. it. Then came back as a Democrat in air quotes right. to run for governor. Yes. This is a man who in the previous election, <laughs> the previous in the 2006 oh election, was our last sitting Republican governor before Rick Scott. And it was a mess. And came back and the Democrats picked him up as a candidate. It's, That's how fucking dumb they think people are. Yeah. That party thinks that we're that dumb that we're going to forget that this guy was a sitting Republican governor. And the Democrats welcomed him with open yes. arms because they don't build a bench. And there's no Tina. one else. There was no one else. It's, there's, yeah. Oh, there probably oh. were at least oh, no, let's no. Say 10 other people probably. Right. But, but no, we're going to roll the dice on somebody who was just a Republican governor. Yeah. Does that make any sense to anyone on the planet? It was. And people fell in line for this guy. Uh, no, it, it, I'm pissed. Now I'm I know, pissed again. I know. Okay, that here was we go. a mess. It I was mean, what, what ridiculous. Is... Can you uh, imagine? So the ads. Let's, I, 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 this is going to be a long episode. I, I hope everybody is enjoying this in their quarantine. I know it's going to be long. The ads resulted in a tightening of the race because Chris was ahead, and then mainly due to a decline in Chris's favorable ratings, which while Scott's fa- favorable ratings did not increase, so. He didn't go any higher. He just started to come down. Yeah. Charlie Chris's ratings. Well, I mean, because it's, of all it's the money ridiculous. spent. I know. By late September 2014, Scott's television ad spending had exceeded $35 million. And in mid-October, so the election's in November, right? In mid-October, it reached $56.5 million compared to $26.5 million by Christ. On October 22nd, it was reported that Scott's total spending had exceeded $83 million. <sighs> and he announced... That having previously said he would not do so, he would be investing his own money. Um, and that was speculated about $12 million of his own money he put into this. So Chris hoped to nice. Yeah. Chris hoped to draw a strong support from Florida's more than 1.6 million registered black voters as an effort and an effort that was challenging with regards to his previous political career as a Republican. I mean, as a Republican, you fucking idiots. It's I, I remember this whole thing and just. Being frustrated and frustrated and, and thinking, like, we, we have, there's no option. Okay, so this was, what, 2014? How in six years has it not gotten better? Because it's not better, Tina. No, it's worse. We, we are now personally we involved have, in all of this, and we know it's not better. No, and the current, we are stuck with our current governor oh, for, what, another four years? Yeah. Another four years. Yeah. And, and 
especially down here with his slow action with with COVID nineteen. Yeah, he's he's a he's incredibly so. He slow. follows the rule. He follows oh, the Trump God. way of doing things, and so it's very very. It's and been we, very and we are a state of 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 so many seniors. Yeah, no, and it's there's bad. no care. I know. All right, and sorry. then people will die, Tina. And then when he's up for re-election, he's he'll gonna win it. again. Yeah. Because people don't remember anything. That's the problem. Nothing sticks. The memories are so damn short. short. Oh, They're please. so short. So uh, Scott and Chris, I remember this too. Scott and Chris met in a debate on October 15th held by the Florida Press Association at Broward College here in Broward County. Scott refused to take the stage for seven minutes because Chris had a small electric fan under his lectern. The incident was dubbed <laughs> Fangate by media sources. Oh my God, I remember Such that. I remember that. <laughs> On November 4th, 2014, Scott won the general election against Chris by 64,000 votes. Okay, so those are the two elections. He was our governor for eight years. And let's, I'm just going to hit some of the um, main issues while he was governor. And I want you to I'm gonna really, freak out. yeah, you're going to. Because now I'm starting to think about when he ran for, for Senate and yeah. and it, I'm stressed out. Yeah. Just anticipating this Girl, coming up. heart palpitations. We should have a heart machine on us. Oh, do you have your watch on? Yeah. We should do our blood pressure, like what's happening right now, because it's so infuriating. But here's the theme is, the theme is, he's the kind of guy, as a, as a governor, he would just throw shit at the wall to see what would stick, and it would be like, Everything was shot down by the courts, but it was just like, let's throw some really awful things out and see what happens. doesn't matter how it affects the everyday Joe. It doesn't matter no. what happens. We're just going to see if we can fuck the shit up for a while. Okay. So the death penalty. In 2013, Scott signed the Timely Justice Act to overhaul the processes for capital punishment in Florida. The Supreme Court of the United States struck down part of this law in January 2016, declaring in an 8-1 decision that a judge, this went all the way to the United States Supreme Court, determining that that a judge determining the aggravating facts to be used in considering a death sentence with only a non-binding binding recommendation from the jury based on a majority vote was insufficient and violated the Sixth Amendment guaranteeing a jury trial. The Florida legislature passed a new statute to comply with that. So this gets shot down and the Florida statute, the Florida legislature is like, OK, hold my beer. I'm going to go. I'm going to make this better. I'm going to fix what you're saying is wrong. Right. Oh God! They changed this, changing the sentencing method to require a ten jury supermajority for a sentence of death with a life sentence as an alternative. The new sentencing scheme, however, was struck down by the Florida Supreme Court in a five-two ruling in October two thousand sixteen, which held that a death sentence must be issued by a unanimous jury. Yes. you dumb idiots. Yes, it's it's the law. It's the Sixth Amendment. This is not. What are you talking about? Oh my God. Um. Okay, so anyway, it was struck down twice. And um, during Scott's tenure, the state of Florida executed more inmates, 28, than had been executed under any governor in the state's history. Drug testing welfare oh. recipients. Remember this gem? Oh, my remember God. This gem? I do remember this. Okay. In June 2011, Oh, Scott, I remember this. Yeah. In June 2011, Scott signed a bill requiring those seeking welfare under the Federal Temporary Assistance for Needy Families Program to submit to drug screenings. I mean, I, what? It, it, he is just... It's so... His assumptions yes, and, and perpetuating... Welfare queens, stereotype, and it's it's so ugly. He's gross. Okay, applicants who fail a drug test may name another person to receive benefits for their children. That was part of the 
the bill. In an interview with CNN host Don Lemon, Scott said, quote, studies show that people that here's, here's this robotic bullshit again, yeah. right? The studies show from who? What yeah. study? Quote, studies show that people that are on welfare are higher users of drugs than people not on welfare. And quote, the bottom line is if you're not using drugs, it's not an issue. Unquote. PolitiFact said this comment was half true. And here's why. Government researchers in 1999-2000 reported that, quote, 9.6% of people in families receiving some type of government assistance reported recent drug use. So 9% of families that receive this money. That's a very small percent. And how many percent of people nationwide are are using recreational drugs? Yeah, that that was nationwide, okay? So then listen to this. I'm talking about non-welfare yes. recipients. Yes. You know, you yes. know what I mean? Yes. Like it's not just, you're, like you're making some statement that it's just, you know, poor yes. people receiving checks from the government that are sitting around doing their drugs and they're not getting a job and they're not, you know, pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. Right. Please. I know. Please. How about all the Wall Street cokeheads out there? <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> Tina's on fire. I love it so much. <laughs> All right. Preliminary figures from Florida's program showed that 2.5% of applicants tested positive for drugs with 2% declining to take the test because they have uh, pride. While the Justice Department estimated that around 6% of Americans use drugs overall. (laughs) The law was, quote, uh, I'm sorry, the law was declared unconstitutional with the United States Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit upholding the ruling in December 14th, uh, December 2014. Um, the Scott administration declined to appeal the decision to the U.S. Supreme Court. So it really was just, yeah, it's just to appeal to people. that. It's a dog whistle, yeah. you know? And um, also it's a way to, um, you know, people who apply for, for these kinds of benefits for their families because they have children. Um, this isn't a, a, a something that people could be proud of or like it's sometimes it can be humiliating. They don't do it because yes. it's free money. And so to further humiliate somebody who's reaching out for assistance right. is is disgusting and that's exactly what he was trying to do he's he's appealing to a base of people that have this idea yeah that i really think it wasn't the the late 80s early 90s where where this idea of of um welfare recipients yes, it's reagan reagan welfare right queens, welfare um, queens. and and it's it's so unjust and it's so wrong and, and racist by the way it completely racist and it's just there's no empathy. I, I don't understand the lack of empathy for people. I know. <laughs> so school choice. I know this is going to get you worked up. Uh, I'm sorry. In his 2010 gubernatorial campaign, Scott vowed to expand school choice. PolitiFact rated this was a promise kept due to Scott's push to expand school choice as governor. Uh, school choice legislation signed by Scott included includes the creation of the Hope Scholarship Program, which subsidizes the cost of private schools or allows a transfer to another public school for students who are bullied. In 2016, Scott signed a bill allowing parents to pick any public school in the state for their children, regardless of traditional attendance lines or county boundaries. In 2017, Scott signed a $419 million public school bill that included charter school expansion. Um, the bill was supported by House Republicans, school choice proponents, and conservative political groups, and it was opposed by superintendents, school boards, parents groups, and teachers unions. Yeah, I mean, you know, the people about, who know yeah, about school. How about <laughs> listening to people in education? Yeah, no. How about that, that for he knows best for for a minute? And again, as a business minded person, these charter schools are they're making money. Yeah, and and they've been known to play around with attendance 
yeah. when it comes up to standardized testing time to, um, you know, they can pick who they want, right, as students. They can kick out who they want as students and kids who lack access, mm-hmm. right? And then they're in these underfunded public schools right. and it's just garbage. It's no. garbage. What else would you expect from this guy? <sighs> During the summer of 2017, Scott signed a bill that would allow any Florida resident to quote, challenge the use or adoption of instructional materials in public schools. Mm-hmm. Proponents of the bill argue that the bill would allow parents to be more proactive in their child's education. Opponents of the bill argue that the bill will allow more censorship, especially for scientific topics like global warming and evolution. So let's get into the environment. Rick Scott rejects the scientific consensus of climate change, saying, quote, I am not a scientist, end quote. No shit. Um, So why don't you listen to them? Yeah. So, you know. Yeah. Oh, my God. And that, 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 the, the, I just have to go back and I know we're long, but that idea of um, um, allowing parents and other people yeah. to have a oh, say I don't want my on the curriculum taught this in the curriculum <laughs> there was there was a county there was a county in Florida where they were fighting to to change like a uh, uh, darwinism that that can't be taught oh my god and to bring in a religious based ideology with adam riding on the dinosaur right. again. yes yes yeah. and it's it no like <laughs> you know there are things that and and to go into a charter school right which is still a public school this is insane. Yeah. This is insane. Oh, okay. So I mean, he says, I'm not a scientist, right? So the political blog Daily Cost propo- proposed a new category for Scott, calling him, quote, climate change mutism <laughs> for, quote, un- those unable to express an opinion. But he can't really express an opinion about anything. When questioned by the press on May, um, sorry, March 9th, 2015 in Hialeah, Florida, Scott did not indicate whether or not he believed global warming is a problem or whether Florida's Department of Environmental Protection has made or is making preparations for its potential consequences. In March 2015, accusations were made that his administration had instructed Department of Environmental Protection officials to avoid the terms, quote, climate change or, quote, global warming in any official communications. Scott denied the claims that his administration had banned the terms. He motherfucking did. Oh, he did. I I remember when uh, I was working with uh, on the environmental justice Yes. Group and and during this time it was yeah the, the, it was known it was well known yes. that that the, that language was not uh, permitted yeah and it's and the greatest part is like we're in Florida that's right that's right Tina I was just gonna say that we are ground zero for climate change the Everglades the oceans like our everything's eroding everything's rising it's the coral reefs and are for, dying and the for algae years, blooms yeah our, our our water supply Lake yeah. Okeechobee like the people don't realize like that is our water source yeah and we are going to be a state with we are going to be climate refugees mm-hmm. having to leave the state of Florida if things don't and change. And you can really, I mean, they should have been doing things for years before this, but this eight years during him, it got tremendously worse. And to be able to recover from that is going to take, well, we're not going to recover. Let's just be honest. We're not. Now, look who, who, look um, who we have in, in yeah, office So now, now he's, he's carrying on that, that torch, uh, DeSantis. So Scott cut $700 million from Florida's water management districts over his tenure as governor. The cuts stirred controversy in 2018 when Florida faced a water contamination crisis. Thanks. But he's yep. in Washington drinking fucking clean water now. Um, okay, gun laws. As of February 2018, Scott had an A-plus rating from the National Rifle Association. 
indicating a record supporting gun rights. The NRA stated in 2014 that Scott, quote, signed more pro-gun bills into law in one term than any governor in Florida history, end quote. Um, 2011, Uh Scott signed the Firearm Owners Privacy Act, informally called Docs versus Glocks, which made it illegal for doctors and mental health professionals to ask patients about their gun ownership unless they believed, quote, that this information is relevant to the patient's medical care, safety, or the safety of others, end quote. This is really scary. I mean, um, this it really this was a place. This was an this was a thing that, as a medical professional, if you are dealing with a woman who's a victim of domestic violence, and they're like beaten up or they need treatment, and the doctor could say, "Is there a gun in the home?" and they could contact the police to remove the gun. It was a real thing. Right. Of course, press, and now they're not allowed to ask because of this law including also with children, pedi- pediatricians, oh pediatricians. It was a big one with pediatricians being able to ask the parents, is there a gun in your home when there's things like, it, they, they have to have a reason to ask, right. to be suspicious. And we were trusting medical professionals to help. Yeah. To be that, that step yeah. in that direction because of they're course. not going to call the police. They're going to the doctor, but they're not going to call the police if you're victims of these of violence. And then, then the people on the other side, they, they could call the police. They, they don't understand cycles of abuse. They don't yes. understand what that does psychologically to a victim and, and to not provide people have a safe place to say this is happening. Oh my God. Okay. So provisions of the law, including the part forbidding doctors from asking about a patient's gun ownership were struck down as unconstitutional in 2017 by the U S court of appeals uh, for the 11th court Uh, I'm sorry, 11th circuit on June 9th, 2017, Scott signed an expanded version of Florida standard ground law into law. Stand your ground. I don't really want to go too much into it because, again, we are running long, but it is a terrible law. It's it's supposedly a self-defense, but police oh, use please. it um, when they shoot an unarmed black man or um, in domestic violence. They use it. Um, it's, 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 it's a terrible, terrible. It's it needs to be repealed. Terrible. I want people elected who are going to repeal this law. It's yes. Awful. Um, okay, so it, here we go. In February 2018, after the Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida, St- Scott stated his support of raising the minimum wage to purchase any firearms from 18 to 21. At the time of the shooting, 21 was the minimum age to buy a handgun, but rifles could be purchased at the age of 18. Scott announced his support of a ban on bump stocks. Um, okay. He also stated, quote, I want to make it virtually impossible for anyone who has mental health issues to use a gun, unquote, requesting $500 million in funds for mental health and school safety programs. Maybe, maybe before a mass shooting would have been the time to fucking do that. Yeah. Maybe when you weren't trying to get that A plus rating from the NRA, maybe that's when you should have been doing this. You know, all of these things that they do after mass shootings. Yeah. They're. We're talking about a mass shooting at a high school in your state. And now you want to talk about how you feel? And now under pressure. Yeah. Under pressure. Because they, and because they rated spotlight. that capital. Those yes. kids and everybody yes. that knows them rated that capital. Yes. Um, in March 2018, the Florida legislature passed a bill titled the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School Public Safety Act, which incorporated many of the issues Scott supported. It raised the minimum wage for buying firearms to 21, establishing waiting periods and background checks, provided a program for the arming of some teachers and the hiring of school police, banned bump stocks, and and barred potentially violent or mentally unhealthy people arrested under certain laws from possessing guns. In all, it allocated around $400 million um, to this, uh, the mental health background 
stuff. Scott signed the bill into law on March 9th, the same day the NRA filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging the law's provision banning gun sales to people under 21. An NRA spokesman said, um, quote, we filed a lawsuit against the state for violating the constitutional rights of 18 to 21 year olds. Oh, my God. Now, um, uh, this I, bill was not that great. Um, it's, it's, it does some things that these kids from Star- the Stoneman Douglas um, March for Our Lives kids wanted, but it didn't do a lot. Other, of other things and what it did is it opened up the door to armed teachers and so which, which which they fought against and then the following legislature le- legislator legislature session in 2019 the republicans came in and added to this act that teachers could be armed correct and i have to say the one thing that makes me incredibly upset as a parent to children in the public schools is that they cannot tell you yes if your child's teacher is armed That's or right. not. That's right. And I, it's incredibly upsetting to me because I feel like as a parent, I have a right to know and I have a right to say, I don't want my child in a classroom with an armed teacher. Not only that, you don't know I, as a teacher if somebody next to you has a gun. Uh, listen, right after this happened, some asshole, some teacher brought a gun to school, not in Florida, I think it was somewhere else, and like sh- accidentally shot his toe. Yes. We want an idiot. Okay. This is what we're dealing with. Um, healthcare. Scott had uh, been a harsh critic of the Affordable Care Act, also known as Obamacare. But in 2018, in his 2018 Senate campaigns, he stopped harshly criticizing the bill. This is another thing he did. He flip flops all over the place. You know, mm. if he's running for office, he feels one way. And then as soon as he gets in the office, he's another way. Yeah. Um, in 2017, Scott said that individuals with pre-existing conditions should be protected. In June 2018, when the Trump administration sought to remove provisions of the Affordable Affordable Care Act, protecting individuals with pre-existing conditions, Scott declined to criticize the administration. Scott said that he did not know enough about it to comment. This is a guy who had his entire fortune from healthcare. I mean. <laughs> Scott had taken a number oh. of positions on Medicaid expansion. For much of his first mm. term as governor, Scott was against Medicaid expansion in Florida, saying it was too costly. In 2013, he came out in support of Medicaid expansion and reiterated his support in 2014 when he was up for re-election. After getting re-elected, Scott reversed his position and adamantly fought against efforts by the Florida Senate to pass Medicaid expansion in 2015. I mean, it's it's something else. And yeah. where are his voters? Where are his seniors that voted for him? Yeah, where are you know, they? I wanted I, in my notes. I, just, I I I went to write down. If you're not familiar with Florida, from like Orlando South, it's very blue, um, and then North is where it's very red. And there's that's a lot of we, people voting. That's why we need a petition. Yeah, to split Florida in half. Oh, please. And there should be South Florida and North Florida, and the big battle will be over Disney. Yeah, we'll have to fight. That's a free zone. Free? No, we gotta. Have to, <laughs> we need that Disney revenue. <laughs> so um, Scott has been accused of having fueled an HIV epidemic in the state while governor by ensuring the state returned fifty-four million dollars in unspent federal HIV prevention grants oh, and blocking sixteen million dollars in CDC grants to Miami-Dade and Broward counties. The effort of this rejection of federal funds, combined with Scott's stance on Medicaid expansion, has been described as quote helping explain why the state's HIV epidemic became almost peerlessly severe during Scott's time in office, end quote, with the state accounting for 13% of the country's HIV diagnosis in 2017. I mean, it's it's endless. So voting rights, this is my favorite, my favorite about this guy. 
Scott frequently sought to to implement voter IDs as Florida's governor with numerous courts ruling against him in voting rights cases like over and over again, dude. Yeah. Scott had signed into law bills that created barriers to registering new voters. Of course. Limiting early voting, ending early voting on the Sunday before Election Day, which is also known as souls to the polls um, in the African-American churches and restricted the ability of ex-felons to restore their voting rights. In 2012, Scott attempted to purge non-citizens from voter rolls just prior to the election. A court stopped Scott from doing so, and it was revealed that legitimate voters were actually on the voting voter rolls he was trying to purge. Of course. The Tampa Bay Times. Tampa Bay Times has fantastic articles about Scott. Oh, my God. I love the Tampa Bay <laughs> Times. Um, they noted that under Scott's tenure, tenure, Florida had the longest voting lines of any state in the 2012 election. After harsh criticism, Scott expanded early voting hours and allowed early voting on the Sunday before election. Anytime you criticize him, he'll he'll act if you say something. Um, in 2016, um, Scott refused to extend registration deadlines after ordering evacuations during Hurricane Matthew. Courts ultimately extended the deadline. Scott signed legislation into law, which rejected mail ballots. Um, where signatures on the ballot envelope did not match signatures and files. And in 2016, a court struck down that law. In I 2014, mean, Scott blocked a request. Desperate yeah. to just restrict voters. Yeah. And why are you so scared, bro? Yeah. What are you scared of? What? That's the thing. The voter? You're scared yeah, of the voter? Okay. That's the thing. In 2014, Scott blocked a request by the city of Gainesville to use a facility at the University of Florida as a site of early for early voting. In July 2018, a judge ruled against Scott's prohibi- prohibition of using of early voting on campus, saying that Scott's ban showed a st- quote stark pattern of discrimination. In 2013, Scott ordered Pinellas County to close down sites where voters could submit mail ballots. I mean... In 2012, a court ruled that Scott could not place heavy fines on groups that registered voters but failed to submit the registrations within 48 hours. Um, And here we go. So, restoration of rights. Um, This is a huge issue in Florida. If you're not aware of it, it's a huge issue since 2018. It's been a big deal. So, um, Scott rolled automatic registration of rights for nonviolent crimes giving former felons a five to six year waiting period before they can apply for restoration of voting rights. Um, if you're a convicted felon in right. Florida, you, you absolutely 100% lose your voting rights for the rest of your life. And like, and, and, and even to get before his court. It yes. Was so we're going to talk about that. Yeah. So um, the, of the approximately 30,000 applicants uh, applications from former felons, to, uh, to have their voting rights restored during Scott's tenure, Scott approved approximately 3,000. Um, a 2018 investigation by the Palm Beach Post found that during his governorship, Scott restored the voting rights of three times as many white men as black men, and that blacks accounted only for 27% of those granted mm. voting rights, despite blacks being 43% of those released from state prisons in the past 20 years. The percentage of blacks among those whose voting rights were restored was the lowest in more than 50 years. And Scott restored a higher share of Republican voting rights than Democrat voting rights than in almost 50 years. As comparison, when Chris was, he's the last Republican governor before Scott, he was, I mean, uh, the number compared to Scott was like astronomical of the voting rights that were approved to get there. It didn't, he wasn't like this. This this is like uh, unheard of what Scott was doing. Yeah. A clemency board, so here's the board. A clemency board was set up by Scott, held hearings oh, this is on so applications. Awful. Yeah, they held hearing on applications, but there were no standards on how to judge the worthiness of individual applications. In March 2017, seven former felons filed a class action lawsuit against the clem- action lawsuit, arguing that the clemency board's decisions were inconsistent, vague, and political. 
In February 2018, a U.S. District Court described Scott's process as arbitrary and unconstitutional and ruled that Scott had to create a new process to restore felons' voting rights. The ruling said that Scott and his clemency board had, quote, unfettered discretion, unquote, to deny voting rights, quote, for any reason, and that to vote to vote again disenfranchised citizens must kowtow before a panel of high-level government officials over which Florida's governor has absolute veto power. No standards guide that the panel, its members alone, must be satisfied that the citizens deserve rest, restoration, end quote. Uh, it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. Not to mention and, and that some they of go the questions from, that he would ask. Yeah, that w- that the the board would ask were like these ridiculous questions that and really it's, and it's in Tallahassee. Yeah. So which Ugh. is if you're not familiar with Florida is like in the northern part of the state, which yeah. from where we live takes about six or seven hours yes. to drive up there. You're talking about taking your time off of work. If driving you want to get your voting rights, yeah. driving up there on your own dime, all this stuff to get up there, plead your case. If you're lucky, they pull mm-hmm. your application out. If you're lucky to go up there and plead your case plead your case and then just be told no and not yeah. have to give a reason why it, it's it's so ridiculous because they want to participate in in democracy they want to vote could you imagine yeah, that you want to vote time. so badly you go through all of it yeah okay we're we're almost done <laughs> and i'm sorry it's very long there's just so much yes the guys i mean the guy is horrible i know um so his support of Donald Trump. In the 2016 Republican primary, Scott endorsed Trump after Trump won the Florida primary. Scott chaired a pro-Trump super PAC in the 2016 election. Unlike many other established Republicans, um, establishment Republicans, Scott praised then-candidate Trump as tough on terrorism and as an outsider during the 2016 Republican convention. When Trump, quote, sparred with the Muslim father of a slain U.S. soldier, Scott said, quote, I'm never going to agree with every candidate on what they're going to say. Oh, my God. When the Donald Trump uh, Access Hollywood tape was publicized, in which Trump spoke of, quote, grabbing women by the pussy, end quote, Scott God. rebuked Trump by saying, quote, I'm not following politics closely right now, but this oh. is terrible. Oh. I don't agree with anyone talking like this about anyone ever. Such a, a robot. Okay, so after months of speculation about a potential run, Scott officially announced on April 9th, 2018, that he would challenge incumbent Democratic U.S. Senator Bill Nelson in the 2018 election. This is where I'm going to freak out. Yeah. In the general election, (laughs) Scott's involvement in a large Medicare fraud caused uh, stirred controversy again. Um, Scott responded with ads accusing Nelson of having cut Medicare benefits and stolen from Medicare. Fact checkers found that both of Scott's assertions were false. And the thing is... That, that whole election, there, there was no push for, I, I feel like that my perspective of it, that Nelson kind of sat back, like, I'm going to get this seat. It, it, and, and there was the Florida Democratic Party. There was no energy. There was no, that, that whole campaign season was a mess. Yeah. It was, a, it was unorganized. And we know from knocking on doors and trying to do, so, it was a hot mess well and you have this other the sitting senators just sitting around and i didn't and 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 just there was like an apathy there well here's the thing and he probably shouldn't have been running thank you that's the whole you know like put someone else who could go up against him if you didn't want it go away no tina you can't do that you understand we as a party in florida thought that the good old reliable bill nelson who no. probably wanted to retire and was done and should have. Should I, have retired I think that if things ago. would have turned out differently in some other circumstances, he wasn't going to be running. I don't think he would have run. I don't think he would have. 
But but the party probably convinced him to do so because he's a good old reliable candidate. And the fact of the matter but he didn't is, do anything. Like, he, he was wasn't running anywhere. No, and he was running against somebody who could pump again millions and millions of dollars into a campaign and flood you. And and the worst part is we had a candidate for governor who was an absolute dynamo star young guy and he would stand next to bill nelson and it was like what's happening right now what is happening right now and it was unfair to bill nelson to do that to him and he should not have been running it was scary yeah it was scary and even uh, the quotes i remember like some of the statements he was was making i was was, like what is he doing what is he saying like just know when to go out of touch know when to go and, and, and home and quite frankly reminds me of biden about how out of touch biden is it's the same fucking thing and so here we are now with the same uh, i know god i, I can't know. get into it okay so um during the campaign scott often sought to avoid mentioning president trump at times criticizing or distancing distance himself from actions of the trump administration whereas in the past he used his friendship with trump to boost his profile um, and then Trump, of course, endorsed Scott in his Senate bid. Um, the initial election results showed Scott leading Nelson by 12,562 votes or 0.15% of the vote. Under Florida law, a manual recount is triggered if election results show um, a margin of less than 0.5% of the vote. Both candidates filed lawsuit in connection with the recount. Following the recount, oh, God, Tina, oh, the, recount, recount. the 2018 recount, oh, Broward County was a shit show. It was such a mess. As usual. But the thing is, guess what? So many people in Broward did not come out and vote. Yeah, well. You know, like, <sighs> just come out and vote, I just had guys, a mini. I just had please, a mini stroke. Please vote. Um, following, <laughs> following the recount, Florida election officials announced on November 18th, 2018, that Scott had prevailed. Scott received 50 pus- of the vote, while Nelson received 49.93. The margin of victory was 10,033 votes out of 8.19 million votes cast. And that's the thing, like, this is where Broward, Miami-Dade, you know, this is how, these counties can drive the state, can make a difference in the state. Nelson then conceded the race to Scott. The race was the most expensive Senate race in the nation in 2018, with the Scott campaign's paying 63 point million or 63 million dollars of his own money total on all three campaigns for that he spent for governor the two governor runs in senate was 233 million dollars this is bullshit so here's why we're here and why we've been talking about this for i think an hour and 10 minutes is (laughs) because i know (laughs) it's because of what scott did this week yes and i said bullshit i'm done with this guy now like i oh i've been done but like i'm over him because his reaction to COVID-19. Florida Republican Senator Rick Scott, South Carolina Senators Lindsey Graham and Tim Scott, and Nebraska Senator Ben Sasse, or Stacey, uh. see, I don't know, erected a roadblock on the swift passage of a pa- massive $2 trillion coronavirus relief bill on March 25th, 2019, arguing that the bill's increased unemployment ven- benefits will discourage people from working or trying to find a job. No one can go anywhere right now, dudes. Okay. <laughs> this is where I'm at. This is why oh when people God, are like, I don't worry, you can file for this. I'm like, no, someone's going to come in and block this or, okay. The fourth senators objected to the bill $600 per week increase in unemployment benefits in addition to benefits currently offered by a worker state. So you can file, um, if you've been laid off or have lost your job because of COVID-19, you can fly, if you're in Florida or any other state, you can file in your state for unemployment. And then you can file for these federal dollars that have been Correct. this $2 trillion, which by the way, 
let's we don't need to mention that's bailing out corporations all over the place airlines but you know we're going to argue about an extra six hundred dollars a week that people right. might need but right. this guy thinks this is how he thinks okay that somebody who has lost a long-term job that keeps right. a roof over their head keeps food on the table or maybe two or three jobs that they've lost we're talking about replacing money right that people might quit that job that they have to go file for oh, this money that's sure temp- it's of course it's temporary right right that's how dumb they think people are wow doesn't i mean and this is someone who came from a modest humble beginnings every like, turn and here's the worst part back at your past he here's the, the the biggest the irony of it all he's accusing people of being thieves yeah of being crooks Ugh. and he's the biggest crook in american history uh, he climbed Medicare fraud. He's climbed that ladder of success. Yeah. Right. And now he's now he's looking down at all of the people below him yeah. as if, you know, as if they think like him. As if they no, but they're below him, right? That that he's now so much better, and he's forgotten that he was at the bottom too. Yeah. Give me a break. But he thinks that we all think like he does. Mm, how can I steal money? Ugh. Okay. My last thing about this guy is oh god, I hate this him. wonderful Starbucks video. Um, where a woman, he goes into Starbucks with all his people surrounding him or whatever, like all his aides or whatever. This is when he was governor and he goes into Starbucks. I'm pretty sure it was in Gainesville and you can go watch the YouTube video. Like Rick Scott, I'm so excited to do this. And he's in line and this woman is sitting there on her laptop and she looks up and she starts screaming at this motherfucker. Oh, I remember this. I remember this from back in the day. This is a screenshot I took of her pointing at him and screaming. And he sat there with that stupid, like (gasps) that stupid look on his face. And this is what she yells at him. I remember this happening. And it was so great. This is, this is the back and forth, which I, I, I I wish I could, maybe I can somehow fill in the, 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 the audio of it. But it says, he, she says to him, you cut Medicaid so I couldn't get Obamacare. You're an asshole. You don't care about working people. You should be ashamed to show your face around here. And then he says, we got a million jobs. That's what he says to her. And she goes, a million jobs? <laughs> a million jobs? Great. Who here has a great job? She says to the whole Starbucks. You restricted women's access to public health care. Shame on you, Rick Scott. We depend on those services. Rich people like you don't know what to do when pe- when poor people like us need need those services. You cut them. Shame on you, Rick Scott. You're an embarrassment to our state. Yes. Meanwhile, so one of his aides had comes over to him and she's like, I'm not talking to you. Right. Good. And so the girl kind of walks away and then this other woman tries to come over and she was like, and so he's, he sits here smiling for like two seconds and then he just turns and walks out. And as she's, he's walking out, she's yelling all this stuff. Like you're an embarrassment yeah. and you see all these people with him just leaving. And it's like, address her. That's Talk what we to should her. do about all yes. of these guys. Yes. He shouldn't be able to go anywhere in the state of Florida. But remember and, and when anywhere. all do you remember when when that started happening at, at restaurants yes. and, and everyone people who work for the Trump administration yes. would get yelled at. Yeah, we get Good. yelled at and people were like, this, they can they should be able to go out to dinner. Here's and the thing. You took a public office. Yeah. You're cho- listen, if, if if you don't want to be bothered, don't associate with with a horrible. Yeah horrible amoral human being and rick scott needs to have a conversation with his buddy marco rubio because you can't find marco rubio in the state of florida and when he comes home that little turd stays at his house and never leaves he never leaves he knows he can't leave his house and so rick scott needs to take lessons from him you can't leave your house anymore when you're this horrible of a human being how dare you show your face in the state oh my god you should be ashamed of yourself i remember going to um 
it, it was an event and they brought someone just brought a spine like a the, oh the skeleton and they were like here marco rubio you you left your spine behind like oh my god because he's such he's 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 a do nothing yes he is a do 2022 honey god 2022 and he'll run oh. again because he's got nothing else to do but we got to get him out. And how if, is he if, not We've got two years now. To, who are we running against him? How is he not? How is his family? Where are the people in his life saying, what is wrong with you? Please. All right. God. We got to We got to We got to go. So let's, um, <laughs> we got to, that might be the end of the episode. Tina. Oh <laughs> Save God. your story for next week. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just kidding. All right. I'm anxious. Oh my God. Sorry. Rick Scott's the devil. Um, he is walking earth and. Uh, he he blew my mind this weekend. I had to take it out on him. I'm no, sorry. Listen, listen. Mine is short. Mine is kind of short and sweet. Okay. Hi, true crime recruits. I am Margot, host of Military Murder, a show where I have combined my love for the military and my love for true crime to bring you military true crime cases. It's like true crime, but instead of crimes committed by Joe Schmo, the cases I cover are committed by Private Joe Schmo or Veteran Joe Schmo. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. On the show, I've covered the gruesome 1993 love triangle that led to a soldier's decapitation, the infamous 2007 case of an astronaut who drove cross-country, allegedly in a diaper, to confront her romantic rival, and most recently, I covered serial killer BTK, who is an Air Force veteran. I hope that you'll join me and my true crime army every Monday as I navigate these military true crimes. You can find Military Murder everywhere you listen to podcasts, including Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Now go on, go subscribe and listen right now. I, I want to just call out a couple of, of reporters, um, a Jennifer Kelleher and the Hawaii News Now, um, Honolulu Civil Beat, among a million other sources as usual that um, I have listed. So I am going to tell you the story today of um, former Honolulu police chief Louis Kialoha and his wife, former Honolulu deputy prosecutor Catherine Kialoha. Ooh. So we are in Hawaii. Oh, doesn't it look nice? Look at that beach. Oh, my God. Ooh, I'm not a big pineapple person. Yeah, well. I'm not a tropical f- tropical fruit person. Oh, well. Oh, I, oh, my God. I could eat pineapple all day long. I know. My son's I that way. I love pineapple. Yeah, no, no. So, Louis Kialoha served in the Honolulu Police Department beginning in 1983 and after working his way up, got sworn in as a police chief in 2009. But in 2017, (laughs) after an FBI probe surrounding, of all things, a stolen mailbox, the police chief, along with his wife, found themselves mired in the muck, girl. (laughs) (laughs) So... Our story is taking place in Honolulu, and that's the capital of Hawaii, population of about 350,000 people. And it's known for its traditions, right? The East-West Pacific culture, as well as military defense. And it's a tourist hotspot. I always think big waves, you know, tropical breezes, pineapple, ukuleles, laid-back culture. But there's a lot of, I guess with everywhere, there's the underbelly of the city that, that we don't see in pop culture. Yes, so in 2017, Louis and his wife, Catherine, wind up in this corruption case that it ends up exposing their power and greed. And it's a bonkers little case. Okay. <laughs> um, but I want to give you a little bit of background that ends up leading to this FBI probe. 
So um, like Governor Scott, Louis Kialoha came from modest beginnings. His mom ran a lunch shop and his dad worked as a fisherman. He started his law enforcement career in 1983. And according to the Honolulu Police Department, which still has his photo listed, like when you go to their website okay. and it says like past police chiefs, you click on it and he's there yeah. and it lists the things that he's done. And there's no mention of the criminal stuff, which I found <laughs> like, like they should have a little note at the end, like P.S. Yeah. You know, this guy is, was corrupt, but no, he's still there with his, his photo. Mm. Um, I thought it was a little odd, but it showed off the kind of police chief he was prior to being exposed okay so um he ran like a efficient department he was like very organized and he was known to incorporate hawaiian principles of mahalu which means gratitude aloha uh, we know it as hello but also there's this meeting of love or um, a bond between people and pono which is integrity and so i really love like that that was like his philosophy yeah. he incorporated like this these the hawaiian ideas and the idea of Pono integrity stood out to me. And we have this person who wanted to bring like uh, community-based organizations and law enforcement together and like, let's work together in the community and do good things. But then, you know, he ends up being this guy who, who lacks integrity and, and is uh, even when he was named police chief was already doing crooked stuff that people weren't aware of. Oh God. So Catherine Kialoha, his wife had a similar modest beginning. She lived in a really rural area and she made her way through law school, graduated in 1995. And they met when they were earning um, these separate master's degrees they met in college. And so, you know, she's this other person. She worked her way up, ended up being pretty successful and they end up building these great careers and their reputation in the city as like this power couple, you know, you have the yeah. deputy prosecutor, police chief, and everybody loves the story, right? Like it's crime the, heroes, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like poor, meager beginnings leading to success. It's that American dream. But I feel like just like, like with this Rick Scott, that a lot of times like people who often go from super, not all people, but there's this, there's always like some corruption, right? That when people end up highly, highly successful. Like they were living in like the Beverly Hills of Honolulu and yeah. you're a cop and yeah, your wife is a lawyer, but a deputy prosecutor, like how are you living the Civil high servants. life? Right. Yeah. How are you living the high life with the, with these salaries and like that people didn't maybe call them out or, or look into it a little more or wonder where this was coming from, you know? So especially with this rags to riches story that how did they end up there right. in the super like high-end gated community kind of life in the upper echelons of, of, of Honolulu society? So let me get into some details of, of the case. So the thing that, that ends up getting them in trouble is that Louie tries to frame Catherine's uncle for petty theft with this mailbox right? That her mailbox gets stolen and she charges her uncle. She's like, it's my uncle. They have this video, this grainy footage Weird. and it's the uncle has done it. And then they come to find out that they're trying to get the uncle out of the way because he wants to expose ooh. their fraud. Ooh, ooh, and ooh, so ooh. That, like, that's what they do. Yes. They, and so according to a slate article by Molly Olmstead, allegedly, this is what the uncle was upset about that Catherine his niece took out a reverse mortgage on her grandmother's home. So the uncle's mom. Okay. Right? 
took out this reverse mortgage, and I think it was around 2008. And she's like, okay, I'm going to take a reverse mortgage out on your mom's house. I'm going to handle all the paperwork, and we'll use the money from that reverse mortgage. We're going to buy you a condo because he needed, like, a house or whatever it was. I'll make the condo payments. We'll pay back the reverse mortgage. But meanwhile, she pocketed Ooh, no. the money Stop. Come from on. the reverse mortgage. He didn't get a condo? No, he got a condo, but she's not making payments. Oh, my gosh. Not only that, her 99-year-old grandmother loses no. her house. No. And so can you imagine doing that to, to, to your grandmother? And so the uncle and the grandmother are like, this is like when they discover like what's happened. Oh my, but how long? That can't take long before you discover that. Well, it was a few years. And so really? when, it's like not, oh, cause it, maybe the mail wasn't going to them or the, right. Cause she's in control she's, of everything. Oh my right? God. So they decide to sue her for what happened. And, um, when the uncle and his last name, his name is, uh, Jared, uh, Puana. When they go to sue her, the husband, Louie, uses members of his force to follow Puana around and then blames him for stealing this mailbox. So because it's a mailbox, right, that's considered like federal. Yes. And they, the, the, really the person who ends up uh, getting all of this exposed is, is Puana's lawyer. Because when he looks into the theft of the mailbox and, and Puana is like, look, these people are corrupt. They're yes, framing me. This yes. didn't happen. I'm, I'm telling you, there's this bigger thing. And the lawyer's like, well, what, why would this police chief, like, I don't get it. But when he looks into the mailbox, the mailbox was worth like 180 bucks. But they put the value at 380 So it made it federal. To make it this yeah. federal thing. And he's like, why would they do that? Yes. And he starts thinking, something's not right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he smells a rat. Ooh. And so uh, that ends up giving like credence to Puana's story. And, um, what a good lawyer. Thank God. Yeah. So, but at the end of the day, uh, they really haven't figured out who really ended up stealing this mailbox <laughs> and it was probably, you know, people tied to Louie and everyone else. So, um, the other thing that she did was, um, she tried to have her grandmother declared mentally in, um, incapacitated so that she couldn't like go against her for this for oh the stealing. God. Yeah, can you imagine? No, that's is really it, evil. It's I mean, to me that is so just uh, it's so hor it's like a little old lady no. and she's so cute. I'll have to here, let me show you just a picture of the grandmother. Oh my god. And they were interviewing her. Is oh it she's god. just so cute and that she has to go through a She's trial. 99? She was 100 years old when they she were She looks good. She looks great. So, um, I don't, I don't look that good right now. <laughs> like this COVID got me all worked up. Oh my God. So the, it's, this whole thing is terrible. So along with being, you know, he completely abuses his power, right? Because he's, he's, he's sending police officers to tail a guy who isn't guilty of anything, right? To frame him for this theft. And, and the guy ends up like arrested and, and like in jail and like having to go to court. So she did all these things, but the husband's aware that she took this money, obviously. So yes. Right. The husband, so why else would he be helping her frame right. that? Yeah. So the other thing that he sort of gets in trouble for is obstruction because, you know, they had this footage of, of him, of the officers tailing Puana, but then they erase all of the footage uh -oh. and they just like uh, have the camera at like the ceiling. 
And so now all the footage is just of, 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 of an office ceiling in the police department. Oh my God. So now he's embroiled in, um, yeah, cover obstruction up. as well. Yeah. So, um, the mailbox case ends up in a mistrial and early on they, the courts end up siding with Catherine, like over like the reverse mortgage thing. But then the FBI gets involved and everything gets tied into this larger like FBI probe. So that's in 2015. And so, um, once the feds get involved, they spend two years investigating and seeing like what these two are up to. And so, um, all of this, this plan to let's silence the uncle ends up getting the feds on their tail. So it backfires like completely on this couple and it ends up revealing how she like scammed their way into this like incredible lifestyle. So during their probe, what do they find? Oh, I'm dying. I was going to say this cannot be the first thing that she did. Allegedly. Allegedly. (laughs) She stole children's uh, trust funds that she served as a guardian and a trustee on. Yes. Stole money out of a children's trust. Wow. And she had one of the victims of the trust cover up her crime because she told him that his mother, who had a criminal past, would go to jail. And so that, so now, now one of the victims ends up in trouble for his part of, of trying because he trusted his auntie in this whole thing. (laughs) Isn't, I mean, I the like other the thing, said auntie. Yeah. The other thing, <laughs> covered up in oxycotton drug ring, oh. run by her brother. What? Who was an anesthesiologist. This is a deputy prosecutor. Let me tell you something right now. Uh, my anesthesiologist, when I had my um, when I had my daughter, the they gave me the epidural. Oh. Like a few years later, I was watching the news and he was caught up in a in <gasps> doing drugs or oh, something at no. his house. And I was like, oh, shit. Like I saw his picture. I was like, oh, that guy's like a huge needle in my back. <laughs> oh, my God. I remember actually something about that. Yes. So um, she used the power of her office to move the investigation away from her uh, from her brother. Mm. So but she she's embroiled in the ring as well. And so when they came to her about um her brother she's like there she is in the prosecutor's office like shifting. oh my god yeah she's right? got she got a handle on it he's got the handle at the police department yes wow um she forged documents under the alias allison lee wong and according to nick group of the honolulu civil beat one of the pros- prosecutors said that if she wielded the that she wielded the law as a cudgel to silence and intimidate anyone who tried to question her wow so she would have um like these loans and take things out under this fake name. And she was a notary. So she could notarize stuff from this Alison Wong, but wow. Alison Wong doesn't exist in any time. And she still claims that there's this woman, Alison Wong, but no one has seen her. And but there's all this paperwork suddenly like, Oh, Oh yeah. Here, Alison Wong has this here. And, and she would use that as a way to oh my get money. Wow. And then of course, you know, the drama with the uncle and the mailbox. So what are they spending all of the money on? So some of the things, and this is according to Hawaii News Now, $26,000 was spent on a brunch at the Sheraton Waikiki. And this is when Louie ends up like police chief. He has a celebratory lunch, a $26,000 celebratory lunch for his wow. like, new position as police chief <laughs> wow. that, they're, that they're spending stolen money on. Wow. It's like, it's crazy. $10,000 on car payments for a Mercedes and a Maserati. Ooh. $4,000 on vacation. Two thousand dollars on Elton John tickets. Well, and come on, that's so, a given. We got to so, do that. <laughs> but but some of these things were gifts 
for Catherine, who had this firefighter lover boyfriend on the side. Wait a minute. Chief of firefighters. So let me show you. Wait a minute. Did he, the husband didn't know about this though? Uh, no. Okay. So let me just show you. This is, um, she's all in, she's all in with those civil servants. So this is the couple. She's very severe looking. Wow. And this is He's so, handsome. So this is the husband Louie yeah. and his wife Catherine and they're exiting court and they're wearing the lays. And people were really outraged because lays are typically used like in celebratory manner, weddings, happy occasions, not when you're accused of, you know, federal right. crimes. Right. And so they didn't like like the public didn't like that they were doing yes. this show with, with the lays. Um but that's them leaving court. And then this is the the firefighter show, lover. You the firefighter Wait, I'm just lover. let me picture in my head for a second, like a firefighter calendar, hot hot month calendar. Please don't let it be something worse. He <gasps> is. <gasps> Wait, dang! Not the one in the hat. No, oh girl. Oh my god, Tino. Hold on, let me look at this picture real quick. Look, he is good. He oh, would be on a calendar. She, what is she doing? How did she get him? Well, it was all those gifts. She had a ma- magical vagina. Maybe I think it was Holy. all the money. So well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> but look at look at him. I was like, no, girl, yeah. no, hey, get a girl. Good for you. Hey, he's steal like that money it. from your grandma. Yeah. <laughs> grandma got no house. But look at my lover. <laughs> oh my god! So he, good looking guy, um, but he ends up, you know, he ends up in a little bit of trouble. Well, so <laughs> how does all of this end? Well, can um, I say something real quick? I love this whole idea of like. Uh, what, what, th- how thrilling it must be to like steal this money. And it's all a secret and you and get then, to do all these fun things, but like, and showering your hot to, firefighter yes, boyfriend like, with gifts. Eventually it's going to end. It's like how, how fun it must be in that moment. But then at what point don't you lay down at night and go, well, eventually this oh, is all going to yeah. come crashing down. I don't, I don't know how, but she was, um, it must be thrilling is all I'm saying. She, she just was so, um, intimidating and, and, vehemently denying you know right, and right. i mean and you saw that there's a severeness about her i don't know so <laughs> the charges for Catherine: conspiracy obstruction of official proceeding bank fraud aggravated identity theft and mis misprision of felony which b- basically means hiding a felonious act like hiding right. all of these these right. things and then louis conspiracy obstruction of official proceeding and bank fraud and so the aftermath, both Catherine and Louis ultimately plead guilty to the charges. So, you know, just to recap, they stole from the reverse mortgage, the kids trust fund, the fraudulent bank loans, right? And so they plead guilty and together they have to pay back almost $300,000 to the uncle and the grandmother. They have to pay about 165000 in restitution to the children she defrauded. And they have to forfeit about $63,000 from her home's sales. So they have to, wow. you know, sell the fancy house and, yeah. and all of that. So in the end, she assumed guilt for identity, for identity theft, bank fraud, and the drug charges. And this is what prosecutors had to say about her. A prosecutor is backed by the awesome power of the state and entrusted to professionally and ethically abide by the rule of law. When a prosecutor commits a crime by breaking the very laws they have sworn to uphold, the public's trust in the criminal justice system suffers. And that's coming from assistant U.S. attorney uh, Michael Wheat. And he's right. You know, like she, this isn't just some regular lawyer in a law firm. Like she is doing, she's a civil servant. Mm-hmm. So um, he ends up pleading guilty to the bank fraud. And they are both expected to serve years in prison. But 
they were supposed to get sentenced of March seventeenth uh, of this year, but I haven't heard. Like I, I was looking, and this COVID. we're in the middle of COVID, so yes. I don't know how this is going to roll out. Like how much how much year, uh, jail time and that that they'll get. Um, the other thing that happened as a result is more oversight of the Honolulu Police Department, and Honolulu's first ever female police chief was appointed Ooh. after Louie stepped down. So I was like, hey, Go there's, girl. you know, their first female. So there is a, a positive at the end of the tunnel. Always got to come in and fix everything. Yes. <laughs> so a couple of points of interest that I like to always add. So after it's all over, Louie tries to distance himself from his wife to try to get some leniency with the sentencing. And apparently, you know, like I said, she's funding her lover. And even though they tried to remain a United Front during the trial. So during the trial, they would show up holding hands and they were, mm-hmm. here we are, this, 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 um, this couple and we're still remaining strong. Um, when the sentencing part was coming down, he probably realized like, I need to, cause her yeah. crimes of course were worse and yes. he starts distancing. Um, did it work? Um, well, I don't know as oh, far right, as the jail time yet. Jeez. So she tried to say that her ex Louis, um, didn't have much to do with it, but during his sentencing, he said he knew what he did was wrong. He cried and he hoped to redeem himself. But I feel like, you know, tears don't cut it. You're the police chief. Mm-hmm. You're in a position of power. You made choices and, and you, you, you put forth all those wonderful principles and you didn't abide by any of it. Right. And they have, ch- you know, they have, they have a daughter mm. and it's like you, you've destroyed all these, your life, your child's life. I don't know. So, um, according to West Hawaii today, uh, uh, writer Rob Perez said that, uh, he wasn't completely aware the extent of his wife's action, right? So, mm-hmm. so he did try to help out, and he was aware of some of that fraud, but he, I don't think, he was aware of of how far she was going with things. Right. Um, and it kind of sucks, right? Any spouse who's duped by someone they trust. And then when I looked a little closer at the drug charges for Christine, according to local news KITV, she covered up in her role as a prosecutor. Uh, that he was trying to buy Coke, but text messages showed that not only were they in cahoots over selling the Oxy, but they wanted to use the proceeds to fund their cocaine use. Oh my gosh. And I'm like, who is this lady? Like she's doing Coke. Like she, and when you look at her, like she, she just looks like a middle-aged lady. Yeah. Party. (laughs) She's partying with the young fire, but I don't know what's going on. So um, another thing I found is five years before the FBI started its probe, they made the cover of a local magazine with the headline Dynamic Duo. Aww. Together, the Kialoas serve and protect the public and Hawaii's <laughs> natural resources. <laughs> Dynamic Duo. Yeah. It still holds true, except now, you know, they've gone from uh, serving the public to serving time. I mean, <laughs> it's just. <laughs> uh, funny. So uh, Louis finally, you know, he files for divorce and he's like, the Aww. marriage bond is broken. Poor and thing. so, um, <laughs> so remember earlier when I said that he was still on the, the, police department's page yes so according to an article in boston college magazine at law um law magazine nick group explains that when louis first gets accused he of course doesn't quit he says he'll take uh. a leave while all this is going down but then they strike a deal he'd get two hundred fifty thousand dollars lump sum payment and then a hundred and fifty thousand dollar annual pension and and yeah be noted as retiring in good standing <gasps> which may be oh, why, why on that on, there. on yeah. that website yeah right it's like so i do think i, I did read something that. that that he may have to um give up some of that pension 
after the fact. So um, we'll have to see maybe like once he gets sentenced, how that yes, rolls yes, out. Yes, yes, yes. And then another thing that happened. Uh, so Louis is currently out on bond. Oh, okay. Right, waiting his sentencing. Right. And his half-brother, Andre Peters, who's also a member of the force, got arrested recently, um, uh, I think it was like a month and a half ago, for physically assaulting Louis. Ooh. They got in a year, and he ends up getting suspended uh, from the force for that physical assault of his half-brother. Oh. So, and it was like at one in the morning. So who knows? He's probably just ma- just mad. He's probably just yeah, really it's angry. Embarrassing. Come on. Um, and then Catherine's boyfriend, firefighting Jesse uh, Ebersole, pleads guilty to lying about the affair. So he had no part of anything. But when they put him on the stand to say, oh, okay. are you having this affair? Was it? And he's like, no, no, we're just friends. We're just friends. And then finally he's like, no, like he admits to it. But because um, this was a federal court, um, he could face up to five years in jail for that lie. Like, just admit it. Wow. And and they said that he was maybe embarrassed to come <laughs> forward about this affair and That's like being hard. showered with gifts and, and whatnot. But now he's on leave from his job and... You know, that's it. So that was my little story. I made it like oh a little God. short and sweet. Oh, I'm sorry. Mine was so long. No, no, no. I th- I think it's like a nice little little thing at the end to yes. think about this crazy power couple that, um, you know, I mean, the grandmother. Oh. Like, how do lady. you, how do you, how do you live with yourself knowing that, that a 90 something year old woman is going to lose her home because of you? And then you want to go in court and and attack her and then try to declare her incompetent like it's the dr- do you oh. think it could be the drugs just the fun and the drugs you just don't think about anything else it's all about you in that moment you know I what don't i mean no that's it's it's Addiction. horrible <laughs> I, I don't want to give her i don't want to give her an excuse <laughs> cocaine's a hell of a drug hell of a drug oh my god so yeah so that is that crazy and it's one of the biggest um scandals of honolulu oh my god i love it yeah so. girl that was a good one yeah nice all right well then we will end it yes with a wonderful farewell and hope that everyone is doing yes well please, staying home please. and staying healthy let us know how you're doing send us a message on instagram we love to hear from everybody and uh you know hang in there we're one big human family tina <laughs> we'll survive i hope so <laughs> <laughs> see you on the other side yes all right bye bye If you want to see any photos or take a deeper dive into our stories, please follow the episode notes on our website, themuckpodcast.fireside.fm, and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Muck Podcast. To support The Muck Podcast, please visit our Patreon page. We have three levels of support and different goodies for each level, Muckraker, Policy Wonk, or Bleeding Heart. We can't do it without you. Music for The Muck Podcast, written and performed by Sean Doherty. 